everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, life in the context of Linux, episode 120. No, that's not the show length. Recorded November 10th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Hey guys, how's it going? Doing pretty good. Uh, How are you, Mark? I'm good. See, the nameless one. I did that just so you, Seth, would say my name. See, I, I made him do it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even introduce the guest. I didn't tell you what the show is about. I just made him say my name. For those of you people who say that I am the nameless one. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Linux. Um, this week's show is um, sort of a mishmash of, of different ideas. We uh, enjoyed our thought experiment show so much last week, we thought we might kind of do it again. So this week, the nominally, the topic is about what happens when a distro fails to deliver. But we'll see where the discussion actually takes us. And of course, <laughs> the us that I'm referring to uh, is myself, Mark, the as-of-yet-unnamed one, uh, alongside <laughs> Chris, the command line godfather. Hey, Chris. Hey, how goes it in internet land today? I hope everyone's having a warmer one and less snowy one than I. Oh, no snow here. It, it was 65 degrees and sunny here today. All I can say is you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, alongside the, the command line godfather is Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the Element OP faithful who are finding us on the record and not the live show. Yes, and that would be everybody, because right now there are no viewers at all. Why are there no viewers? We're we're recording two hours early. Why are we recording two hours early? Because the Cowboys are playing tonight, and Seth didn't want to miss it. Not only did Seth not want to miss it, I didn't want to miss it, but I was glad that he said something because it it would have uh, it would have um, seemed petty for me to say it but for Seth to say it I felt better <laughs> yeah well you know it brings out the machinist in me watching the uh, Cowboys play I don't know I'm kind of split because you know on the one hand they are really supposed to lose and the Saints are a good team so the Cowboys normally play good teams well and they normally win the games they're supposed to lose sure. however, on the other side, they're one game over 500 and coming off of a win, so they're probably due for a loss. So <laughs> I'm kind of right. interested on how it's going to turn out. They can't put a string together. That, that's been proven down through the history of time. <laughs> um, all right, just a quick update. I told you, I think, uh, in a recent show anyway, I told you I was going to scale up my coffee production and try to, to, to go from, from one gallon to multi-gallon. So I went and got some five-gallon food-grade uh, buckets and plumbed them in and made a rig, you know, had a hopper and, and I did the drain thing just like I did uh, that I talked about in the other show and I plumbed it down into another one. So I did a test run with just water and uh, had was leaking like a sieve like crazy. So I had to fix all that. But, you know, that's what test runs are for. So I got it all right, got the uh, all the seals locked down and, and just plain water, no coffee, nothing to distract it, just water going through a coffee filter, which is, of course, um, a bit of a restriction there. The suction on the lower bucket was so much that it caused the lid of the bucket to cave in and crack and split open. So oh, no. that's bad. So I went and, and got a stronger bucket uh, lid. It's, a, it's called a gamma lid. Uh, the bucket cost a buck and a half. The lid cost $6. So they're serious oh. about this thing. Um, wow. So 
So I, I uh, and then I, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to do this. So I pulled my five gallon bucket out of the the refrigerator, and the the weather has changed here in the south. And my garage refrigerator, which was set to uh, keep things cold in the summer, froze five gallons of coffee. Just a big block of coffee. Actually, it wasn't five gallons. I started with two and a half, but still. Um, I had Ouch. to I had to put that inside and let it defrost overnight. So I started it today, and I put it all in there, and I turned everything on, and I walked away uh, for about thirty minutes. I came back in, and that bottom five gallon bucket was crushed like a soda can. The vacuum pressure couldn't break the <laughs> lid; it just sucked in the sides of the can. I took a picture of it. I'll post it online uh, later, maybe on my Google Plus. Uh, I just who knew. That these, I mean, this is the heavy duty, you know, plastic uh, bucket. You can sit on one. You can stand on one of these things. But no, no, no. There's enough pressure, enough suction pressure created that it sucked this thing in, and it looks like um, it looks like somebody crushed a soda can. So I'm gonna have to figure out some other <laughs> method for doing this because clearly the white plastic five gallon buckets is not gonna cut it. You're gonna have to Maybe get have to a move. metal five gallon bucket, yeah, or glass. I'm gonna say you have to move up to the uh, the you know economy or the commercial five gallon metal buckets. Yeah, I, I got the trouble with those is is I haven't seen any that are food grade. It's got to be, um, uh, you know, stainless steel. It can't be galvanized or anything like that because it's got to be food grade. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they make them. I just haven't found them. But one of the thing I've I've been I've been thinking about is a a carboy. It's used in beer and wine making. It's basically uh, like the plastic bottles you see on top of a water cooler, but made out of thick glass. So I think maybe oh. that will work. Um, there you go. And those are readily available. There's a winemaking shop in, in the town where I live. I can pick one of those up. They're probably going to be fairly expensive, probably 40 or $50 for, for a carboy. But uh, I got to figure out how to, how to seal that and get uh, the, you know, the, the, ca- the plumbing in there and, and have a, an airtight seal. I'm not... You know, I can't just drill a hole in it like I do the plastic bucket. So I'm not really sure how that's all going to play da- uh, play out. But I can assure you, if you're looking at replicating my process, five gallon buckets not the way to go. <laughs> hmm. That's still awesome to find, to walk in and see a crushed bucket. That that would have been yeah. that would have been the what the oh my god moment. <laughs> what if you had a uh, a weaker a little weaker strength vacuum something not quite shop vac well see that's the thing if it if it were any weaker it wouldn't be strong enough to separate the the stuff i mean the reason the only reason is it's doing that is that the coffee grounds themselves are creating enough force to to hold it back i mean if they could get flow through there it wouldn't cause that kind of vacuum uh so it's you know it's it's just kind of a that's what you have to have to be able to pull that through i just never knew that that little mason jar was sustaining that much force um yeah that's impressive Uh, but you know it's a glass hmm. cylinder. Cylinders are are solid. Glass is a non compressible. So I, you know it, it doesn't surprise me. I just didn't realize how much pressure I was putting on that thing. Yeah, makes you almost glad that you never had a crack in one and have it go kaploosh. Yeah. Well, I see the the moment even the tiniest crack gets in there, air would get through and it would release the vacuum. So I think it's fairly safe. I don't think there's any danger of it, you know, imploding or anything like that. Um, I could be wrong. I mean, there are probably lots of nine-thumbed guy, fingered guys walking around who said that same thing. Yeah, they're called well, thinking, Hey, <laughs> what happens if I try this? I don't think it is going to be a problem. I think I'm okay. I saw it on TV once. 
or on YouTube. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I've seen it on the internets. They can't put nothing on the internets that ain't true. Yeah. So that was my um, uh, moment of revelation this weekend, Chris. Apparently, you had one of those too. Um, I did. I, I'm. Just, I don't even I know. I don't know what your story is, but I can tell by the headline you put in there that my favorite saying or one of my favorite sayings is appropriate. I like to say I hate stupid people. I hate it worse when I'm stupid people. Oh, no, no. I didn't have a stupid moment. Oh, okay. I actually had a moment where my wife was like, that is never going to work moment. Ah. And it's always nice when I can go, yes, dear, I love you to death, but you're wrong. And I'm right. And I have proof hanging on the wall. So... We have, uh, we're, we're renting my home in case people haven't realized, but we have a basement. My, my son lives in the basement. He, we like to call him his, you know, that he's a basement troll. He's a think we see him. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so we, but what happened is the, the, um, I can't remember the word. Um, the words just escaped me, but the, uh, for the curtain, the curtain rod for his bedroom, the we can't seem to get the the curtain rod hangers to stay in the wall, and I don't know if it's just poor manufacturing on on the house side or the on the rods on the hanger side, but I'm tired of going down there and rehanging it every couple of weeks. So I had a moment, you know, those little hooks you can buy at the grocery store that are the press on ones, yeah, that say they're good for up to five pounds or yeah. whatever, and they just use, you know, just some sticky stuff and away it goes, right. My wife was like, that'll never hold. That weighs too terribly much for those little hooks. And I went, well, we shall see. <laughs> little did she know that I have actually been weight testing a couple of them at work to see how much weight I can really put on one of those little plastic hooks before it you know, fails. You know, those little hooks can hold almost four pounds. Yeah, well, my experience with those, Chris, is uh, I, I I don't want to deflate you too much, but the issue is not the ability to hold it in the short term, but over time. Because we've had a number of those holding up things in our house that would last like a week or two, and then they would fall apart. Well, that's what I was thought. I thought the same thing. But like I said, I've been testing this at work for the last six months. Same basic form, you know, the, the, the wall texturing is the same, the material is the same, it's close enough that I figured it would be a good test, and I have a four-pound dumbbell hanging off of it with a string, and it's not even peeling the paint yet. Well, this I, is I will months. say, you're a lot less humid there in Montana than here in Georgia. I'm sure that has something uh, to do with it. Up they, there in they, the Arctic well, tundra, you don't get a lot of this stuff <laughs> called humidity. Yes, so. it freezes right um, out of the air. Uh, well, during the winter, I will agree with you. Uh, during the summertime, I will, I, I will had gladly send you some humidity from a hundred plus for uh, ninety days because that's where we usually sit. Is about ninety ninety percent humidity in Glendive, so it, it's it's nice and sticky most of the time. But I was still pretty impressed, and then I had to then. Of course, call her downstairs and say, "Hey, look, it's going to work without a problem." Aren't you think? Aren't aren't I a sticky genius? And she just kind of laughed and said, "Yes, yes, dear," and walked away. 
So I had one of those moments where I was like, winner. <laughs> yeah, those always turn out to be losses in the long run. So, uh, <laughs> Well, in most relationships, I will agree with you. Me and my wife have a nice little... I, I nudge her, she nudges me, and then she pushes me into a pool. So, yeah, I, I may lose out in the long run, but the short time, it's still nice and nice and sweet. The bitter will get me later. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing more bitter than losing a hard drive, though, is there? Uh, well, I haven't lost it yet. Um, my little laptop that I've been you know, burning all those distros on, it started acting really flaky. And really gave me a scare about a week ago where I would start up my distribution of choice Fedora and it would stop right before the login screen and just with the, the kernel version at the top of the screen and not go any further. Um, and when I, through diagnostics and everything else, I have found that the hard drive is slowly failing. It's, I'm getting more and more bad sectors at the beginning of the drive. So it's it was that whole moment of, uh-oh, time to move and off i've i've moved off of it since but it's one of those moments it sucks when you have a hard drive fail on you yes every time a hundred percent of the time yeah which is oh it's a good thing to know symptoms of a hard drive failure so definitely you know and everyone's are different i don't know if you've had similar things where it's just slow bad performance and then all of a sudden weird hiccups in the file system uh, but definitely listen to your drive. Don't rely upon smart. And if it's, if it's feeling, if you think it's going to die, go get it replaced before it does. Have you, uh, do you own spin, right? Chris? Yep. That's all I know. There are bad I, spots. They're non recoverable, yeah. bad spots. Well, yeah, so, but doesn't, uh, spin, right. Mark those as non recoverable then. Yes. But that's mm-hmm. so when, when they st- when they increase in number when you started with two and then you get six and then you get fifteen, that's when you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what this one has. Dark. It, it it started with four, which I related to you know when my daughter knocked it off the chair, and then four wasn't too bad. You can live with that. But when it goes from four, the next time I checked it, it was at twelve, and then it went up to fifty. I'm like, nope. This drive is no longer valuable. It's going into the trash bin as soon as I get my stuff off of it. I love me some spin right. I really do. It's a great prize. I do we're, too. No, we're not getting paid for this. In fact, we have all paid for it. Um, it's a hundred bucks, which is more than a hard drive these days. But trust me, if, if right. you if your data is important to you, uh, spin right is a tool that you have to have. Oh, uh, and it's also cool, like in our profession, when somebody's machine has failed, I can uh, I can save it for them, and you know all it takes is one time of doing that, and I've paid for the I've paid for it. So yeah, but, but yeah, I love I love Spinrite. Technically, Spinrite licenses for all the hard drives you personally own. So if you're using it on somebody if, else's, you're 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 not in compliance with the license. Well, but the way around that is if you license. buy four licenses, right. then that's their yep. commercial license. Right. Not saying I've done that, but <laughs> just that you know the rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know the rules that you're bending. Yeah. Honestly, Your Honor, I knew I was doing the wrong thing. 
No, uh, see, I bought the drive from them to see if I could uh, do anything with it. And, and I then gave it back, back to them. Yeah, that's good. I like that. During the time that I was working on the drive, I actually owned it. He gave it to me and said, this is now your machine. Oh, I like that. So now anytime somebody says um, that they want you to fix their machine, you have them sign a contract that says, for the duration of this, I own this machine. And then I'll give no, it back no, no. to you. No, no, no. It's broken. This hard drive doesn't work. It's unrecoverable. I'm going to toss it. Well, here, toss it to me. Okay. Right. Hey, I fixed this. Do you want it back? So so if you could prove <laughs> ownership, then then it's fine. I owned this drive. It was mine. I like it. Yeah. I like the other one better. The contract thing would work even better yeah. because then there are things – because then your renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance would kick in. Yeah. See? Well, there you go. See? We'll, we'll come out with a way to make money <laughs> off the show. <laughs> You just gotta you gotta make sure that they trust you, you know, that you gotta give because they're literally signing over their possession to you. That's there's some trust there. Right. Yeah. And I had a good transition, but then we moved on and so I got nothing. So Seth, you going back to California? Yeah, our um you know, I work for a law firm and we have an office in California and we're rolling out a VoIP system. So I get to fly out there this week to uh be the one actually there when it goes live if there's any issues with it so yeah i get to travel to california so that that's the update on my life california is a nice place to visit i wouldn't want to live there actually it depends on what part of california is really two states southern california and northern california are so different as to be two different states yeah Um, and parts of southern california i don't want to even visit uh, but but Northern California is pretty nice overall. Well, yeah, you have the Southern part of California that's, uh, well, anyway, this is not everyday right. politics, so people, I'll just be quiet. People say that about uh, Georgia, too. There's Atlanta, which is its own state, and then there's Georgia. And, and the rest of the state <laughs> wishes Atlanta would succeed because it's so different than every other part of the state. Um, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of that yeah. with uh, Texas and Austin as well. Austin is <laughs> very different from the rest of the state. Well, it's not like they have an important part in the state, like making laws or anything. So, you know. right, yeah, all, all the weirdos go there, and uh, you know that's where we elect people to send them to get them away from us. So, <laughs> that yeah, there you go. Okay, moving on along to something a little more uh, text. We have uh, listener feedback. So we got two things from the door-to-door geek. First is a voicemail, and the second is an email. So first, I will play the voicemail from door. We uh, mentioned him by name uh, when we talked about the fact that Solus OS is going away, and uh, he has to respond to that. Hello, Mark. Hello, Chris. Hello, Seth. This is door-to-door geek. Just wanted to uh, report in really quick. Uh, my heart was never hurting with the closing of Solus OS. Uh, it might have been hard to pick up on, but it wasn't Solus OS that I was infatuated with, dare I say, but it was Ikey. Ikey Doherty. Uh, bottom line, I'm thrilled for him. Uh, he is now going to have the opportunity to go to something that he hopefully finds more fun, more interesting, and being a bigger impact. Um, I'm a fan of disruption, and that's what Solus OS did for me for a little bit. It uh, got me to think differently. It got me to think um, about different ways of doing things and different reasons for doing things. And I thank Ikey for that. Uh, 
wherever Ike ends up, I just hope he's happy. Whatever he works on next, I'm going to support again, uh, just like I supported Tulsa West. Uh, in actuality, I was supporting Ike. And uh, trust me, I say, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see into the future, that will never change. Ike is made of all right, so uh, just wanted to set the record straight. He wasn't a lover of Solus OS. He had a man crush on the developer of Solus OS. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, the whole thing, differently thing, isn't that an Apple thing? So were they yeah. trying to corrupt him into loving Apple? Think, I, I think differently only in as much as you think like everybody else. That's the Apple mindset. Yeah. Oh, Okay. <laughs> All right, and then a voice, uh, an email from Door says, "Hey, Mark. Hey, Seth. Hey, Chris. Uh, first off, Mark. Oh, how I despise you! Well, that's a great way to Aww. start an email uh, for making me want to do physical labor. But you might be the gateway to my sanity saver. I can't stand uh, coffee, but I love my caffeine. I know I'm going to get diabetes if I drink soda or sweet tea. Thus, I cannot wait for you to publish your coffee machine specs and how to." So um, he despises me for introducing him to something new. That's all right, Dor. Better people than you have despised me. <laughs> and for probably other reasons. <laughs> yeah, for better reasons, too. So, yeah. So once I, yeah, so the, the, the small scale stuff, you know, I pretty much laid it all out there in the podcast. I haven't drawn the pictures and put it on the web. But if you listen to that podcast, you can go and, and reproduce what I do on the small scale. Uh, the large-scale stuff, I'm still learning. Don't use five-gallon buckets. Um, <laughs> at least not at plastic, least not plastic ones. ones. Yeah, at least not plastic ones. <laughs> uh, and as long as we're talking about people who hate us, it just wouldn't be a show without uh, our old friend Dowdle telling us that we're wrong. Um, oh, hey, one thing before you get into reading this. Uh-huh. Th- he talks about a news story that uh-huh. I had found and we're going to be talking about later. So okay. I didn't want him to steal my thunder. Oh, okay. So, do we? Wanna, <laughs> all right. Just so you know, Seth found it first. <laughs> okay. So here are right. my here are my comments regarding EDL number one nineteen. The desktop isn't going away. It's just changing form to a mobile device you can dock and use. The desktop interface and desktop apps will still exist when you dock your mobile device. I do agree with Canonical's vision, just not their idea of the same interface for everything. I think the interface should vary depending on the environment, big screen or small screen, and, and what you're doing, uh, something simple or complex, creating uh, content creation or editing. The mouse and the keyboard are still relevant and will stay so for the foreseeable future. Mobile is nice when you're mobile, but as a replacement for desktop interface, not so much. The program launcher between mobile and desktop can be the same. It's no, big de- no, no biggie, but the apps themselves will be vastly different like they are now. Mark's idea that if a Windows server was free, gratis, uh, that that would somehow change things and for and people would stop using Linux on the server makes little sense. For most people, using Linux on the server costs more than the price of Windows already. It's running stuff uh, and the applications that uh, costs the money and people and paying people to manage it, not just the OS. The user access licenses is another place where Microsoft makes money, and maybe they could make those free too, but I doubt they would. But who knows? But it still isn't just the cost of the OS. Microsoft has made their OS free. If Microsoft made their OS free, all of their apps free, and then most third parties also made their apps free, again, only gratis, then Linux would still would have something to worry about. Is that going to happen? 
Windows Server, the core version, is already free and has been for a while now. And something you guys seem to have totally overlooked is that this mobile mobilization of the desktop has had a toll on Microsoft, and it will only get worse. They will have trouble just staying relevant. And if the when, if and when x86 makes a comeback in mobile and desktop mobilization, and it probably will, then Microsoft has a chance. Windows is so tied to x86. Oddly, part of Microsoft's success is also tied to Linux. As reported yesterday, Microsoft gets $2 billion a year from Android patent royalties. Microsoft will probably pay uh, pad its losses with additional patent stuff as additional non-Windows-based hardware becomes more fin- financially successful. On the other issue, Mark downplayed the Libre part of Linux and FOSS. And companies really like that when uh, that they can take FOSS and then shape it however they want to. A gratis Windows doesn't allow that. And gratis Microsoft apps and gratis third-party apps won't allow that either. In the end, Libre is more important than gratis for manufacturers and enterprises. But you guys mostly remain blind to that because you think end users don't care. I agree, many don't. I definitely do. And you should too. But you can lead a student to knowledge, but you can't make them think. Okay. Presented without Um, comment. (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, my first comment is at the very beginning of the of the whole thing, and I even made sure it was highlighted so I wouldn't forget. Um, he makes a point about the desktop isn't going away. It's changing form to a mobile device that you can dock and use. But that defeats the point because at that point, it is no longer a desktop. It is a mobile device with desktop-like functions, which you have in your tablets, you know, the Asus Transformers and the Windows thing that clicks. Okay, those are still mobile devices with desktop functionality. But, but, but Chris, it's, it's it's cool because it clicks. Yeah, but my point though, my my whole point when I was talking to last week was the desktop, the the big rigs, the monster machine sitting on your desk, those are going to go away. We will not have those in the foreseeable future, in the short future, in my opinion. Um, I'm seeing a lot of all-in-one monitor units showing up more and more and more, and the ones that are the people that are big and mob, being mobile going with like the Lenovo tablet that does the what is it the Lenovo yoga that rotates between laptop mode tablet mode and then into a dock so they have a big desktop environment but it's still a mobile device that's what i see the world turning to sh- soon and probably faster than most people are realizing Yes, and as uh, bandwidth gets better and better and more to the end user, Microsoft is tremendously investing in the cloud. Roughly half of their internal employees use Exchange online rather than an in-house Exchange server, which, you know, they because they do a lot. And so it's becoming increasingly irrelevant as to what you have that gets you to the web-based interface or web-based application, Office Online, um, you know, Windows, what do they call it, Azure, Azure, whatever cloud thing. So, you know, in the the desktop, there will be a desktop, but it will become more irrelevant. And, um, you know, so yeah, you know, and of course, part of our show was in jest, but also you're not realizing the way the big companies are going and they're moving away from centrally managed IT and cloud-based and outsourced IT. And when that happens, Linux on the desktop really doesn't matter because it won't matter what the desktop is. You've just got to be able to hit your server somewhere and pull down a virtual desktop. And in a virtual desktop environment, well, Microsoft is a pretty big player there as well. 
All right. I, I'm. What do you guys? Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, what do you guys think of the Canonical's vision of a mobile? You know, the 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 tablet that docks into your desktop and then goes from there. Do you think that's a valid thing? Or do you think it's going to be the whole, is that going to actually take hold or do you think it's going to be morphed into something else? I, I, you know, uh, Motorola tried that with the Atrix um, and they weren't the first. I, I can't remember. There've been a couple of others. Uh, it just, I don't think it's a bad idea. I don't think people are going to adopt it. Um, when you want, uh, when you want, what you want to share is not your interface or your um, your settings or your your launcher. What you want to share is your data. Uh, so, when you're on mobile, you want to have access to your data. When you're on your desktop, you want to have access to your data. You don't need to dock your mobile device into your desktop device to do that um you know a, a dropbox covers that just you know something a large version of that you know some uh, if uh, uh bandwidth is your issue um you know you can have a san and, and i think that people who are interested in in what that offers them are doing it already the geek way the linux way they've got you know they've got a free nas box set up in a corner uh, they've got uh, you know stuff, and they're sharing their data between their mobile devices and their desktop devices. Um, and you know, I, I just don't see—I just don't see it as being something that real people do. And I think Canonical, and in fact, most um, Linux distro uh, developers are not—not not only are they not real people, they're not in touch with real people. Uh, and and I'm not—that's not an insult. Um, real people can't do what they do and we need them to have their esoteric skill set and we need them to have their, uh, their abilities and understanding beyond normal people. Uh, real people is not the right word. Normal people is the right word. Um, and so the problem though is your, your entire system is being designed by people who aren't normal. And then you try to mass produce it out there. And even, you know, Microsoft has billions to spend in research and they fail. Apple uh, it really is heavily invested in user experience, and they fail. Um, the Linux in general, Canonical in particular, never bothers to ask what anybody likes other than their own community. Uh, and so they're pretty siloed. Uh, and then, you know, they can't, they're going to fail more often. So I think they're headed a long way down a road that in the end will be irrelevant. Hmm. My thoughts. Well, I think that, you know, the Motorola Atrix I think that concept, I think that is totally going to be it. However, they were too far ahead of the time and the technology, both hardware and software, was not in place to support the vision that they had. Uh, Bill Gates had the vision for the tablet and he tried to do it. The technology, hardware and software was not in place whenever he tried to roll it out. The technology was in place when Apple put their marketing genius behind it and got it out there. So I think I can totally see the one interface to rule them all being, uh, being the way it goes. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of having the technology to do it, but uh, has, you know, you think about the specs in a phone, you know, like an iPhone or an, uh, whatever the current S number is from Samsung, those are the specs in there 
are the specs in a laptop just a couple of generations ago. So you're walking around with a laptop from like mid 2000s in your hand. Um, with a five so inch screen and no keyboard though. Right. But then, but it can support plugging into a dock and it has the horsepower to make something the size of a dock work. Whereas the Motorola Atrix, it really couldn't do that. It, it was too limited in its hardware power to do that but when but you do that Seth, when, when you do that as well as it can be done you get windows 8 you get two interfaces one for mobile and one for desktop i really think apple uh, microsoft has done it as well as it can be done and everybody resoundingly hates it as well as it can be done today yes so th that's why i say i don't think we're to that point yet but i can see it getting to that point I was going to say something that the only thing that the biggest the that I see that everyone hates about Windows 8 is the fact that it switches between a desktop and the exactly. the start the metro interface. But at this point in the in the iteration or yeah, iteration uh, that's not the right word. The uh, the way that the desktop is going if all of the third parties would be a metro app instead of you know the like office when you hit an office it flips you to the desktop version and you don't get a metro interface if they could get it everyone to play nice with the the one interface that they're trying to move everyone to it would be a different story there wouldn't be so much hate but since they they tried to do that it's just like when gnome 3 showed up or the the changeover from kde 3.5 to kde 4 it's a huge inter interface change that not everybody's playing nice with. Once everyone starts playing nice with it, it'll be a different story. It'll be a completely different duck then. Yeah, but I, I we have that. I don't agree, Chris. I don't think that the mobile interface will ever work on the desktop or vice versa. Sim simply because the way you interface with your machine is different. The mouse, you know, as Dowdle says, isn't going away anytime soon. And you look at, as much as I might hate the Microsoft ribbon interface, um, you look at that, there's a lot of stuff compacted right there. So with a small twitch of my finger, I can move from one uh, command to another, and I can click and I can move back to another with very minimal uh, input. You, you Just by putting that in a touch-sensitive environment, you blow that up because your finger, even the tiniest finger, is way bigger than a mouse. And so you're not going to mm -hmm. ever be able to have the same interface. You've got to have a, a, a totally different interface. And what works for the finger doesn't work for the mouse. It's just not going to. Not ever. They're two totally different blunt instruments. One is one is a, a an analog device that controls that 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 takes hand movements and turns them into computer movements. The other one is your hand tapping on a piece of the screen. Um, and you, you just can't blend those two worlds successfully. I, I just don't think you can do it. And so somebody gets hosed. You either optimize it for the finger, and the guy using the mouse has to go click, 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 click. Oh, there. Now I've done it. Or you optimize it for the mouse, and the guy with the finger ends up having to go get a tiny little stylus so that he can do what he needs to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe the future of mobile is a stylus. Until we get the whole uh, cybernetic, you look with your eyes and your eyes focus on a thing. Right, and Samsung so, is working on some of that, right? The the looking at the screen and that sort of thing. I think I think we have to have a whole different paradigm 
when mice are no yeah. longer the issue and when capacitive touchscreens are no longer the issue, when, when both of those die, then you can combine the two. But until we still depend on those two things, I just don't see a way to blend those two worlds. Yeah, it, it's going to be a tough one. And I, I don't think it's going to happen as fast as everyone else thinks of. But it, it just, who knows? The other thing that could oh. also take over is you have your finger options when you're mobile. And then when you're on the desktop, you go to this, the type it in search like you do in, in Unity. Yeah, like, and, and, and people love Unity so much for that I know. reason. You but know, that's, whenever that's we're comparing things to Gnome 3 and discussing the virtues <laughs> of unity, I think we all agree that that is a vision of the future no one wants to see. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things. Nobody will no do it until somebody comes up with a way that's just a little bit different than anything we've seen before. And then we'll yeah. go, why didn't we think of this 20 years ago? Um, so, you know, I don't know. In today's technology and today's hardware limitations, there isn't going to be a good melding of the desktop and mobile world. But, you know, if you go back 10 years ago, there really wasn't a good way to do mobile. Um, but now mobile is here and it's not going anywhere. So 10 years from now, I mean, we might think, wow, I, I can't believe I used to have five different devices. You know, all I have is this one device that, so, you know, I mean, I don't know. I can totally see it changing, but I totally agree with you. As we are today, there isn't going to be a good marriage of the two. But as hardware and software continue to be innovative or innovated and developed, I can totally see it changing. Now, I don't necessarily know how it's going to change, but I can just totally see it being different and there being a point to where desktop and mobile determines whether you're sitting in a chair or walking and not different hardware sets. And, and and I think in order to make that happen, you have to have an entirely different interface um, um, process. It, you know, it's no longer keyboards. It's no longer mice. It's something else. I don't know what that something else is. And not a smart mouse. Um, and not a smart watch. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, you could go super futuristic, futuristic and go neural, or you could say a camera watching your eyes. You could go voice. Um, you know, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's not going to be a keyboard and a mouse. You know, if if you ever saw that uh, that uh, total candidate for the bad movie forum list, Johnny Mnemonic, uh, and they're mm -hmm. you know in the year twenty six hundred or whatever, and a dude claps his hands and a holographic keyboard appears and he starts typing. Okay, really, we have holograms, but we're still depending on keyboards. I don't think so. Uh, we yeah, have to well, come up with I something mean, better. I don't know. They still use VHS, so I, I can totally <laughs> buy. <laughs> I could totally buy a hologram. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, and I think the net did go when he dialed up. It was something like that. So, all right. Uh, moving on, uh, Dowdle, feel free to write in and tell us how we were all wrong this time, too. Uh, we, uh, uh, we're happy to, to have you do that. But in a, in a, a rhyming um, headline, Tim stands up for Vim. Uh, Tim says, I have to stand up and support the use of Vi slash Vim. Other than my browser, email client, and the occasional doc slash spreadsheet, I spend most of my day at the Linux command line. I build, rebuild, use, maintain several 50-plus servers in a small developmental lab, all from my Fedora desktop. In short, SSH is my friend. 
Amen, Tim. I use Vim I for <laughs> I use Vim for almost all my tasks without installing configuring X. Not part of our normal install. What else is there for this environment? I attempted to learn Emacs once, but found it too cumbersome. Worse than, in my humble opinion, uh, Vi, and with very little return on investment. Uh, Vi is always available on any Nix server, and unless you have privileges or freedom to install personal software editors, uh, I don't know if you if uh, if you don't know Vi or Vim, you're sunk. So, Tim, you have a kindred spirit in the command line godfather. <laughs> I See? personally it think this is say. Chris uh, <laughs> who sent this email in. Chris, why are you going by Tim now? You got me confused. <laughs> Check the email headers. I can definitely say it's not me. Yeah, but you know how to forge <laughs> headers. Uh, I don't trust you. Uh, that's awesome. So you know, we have the command line godson out there who uh, who agrees <laughs> with you. And you know, I you're you're exactly right, Tim. If you're in a, a non graphical environment, you gotta know how to use Vim. You gotta know how to get around. If you find yourself stuck at a command prompt and you got no GUI to work with, what are you gonna do? You gotta know how to to work a way around it. And what better place to learn how to do that than with our old friends at the linuxacademy.com. Their goal is to take you from a total beginner to a Linux uh, server administrator by watching their videos and taking their courses. They begin with the command line. I'm sure I haven't looked, but I'm sure there are things out there on Vi and Vim, and I'm sure they certainly use it. Step-by-step video courses that take you from being a beginner to being a, a server admin to being ready for certification, all right here at this one site. You get your own lab server uh, with virtual machines that run up in Amazon's cloud services so that you can you can play with stuff and not be afraid to hose it. Uh, if you don't have the bandwidth for that, you can download the whole thing uh, and run your own VMs on your own laptop. They offer that too. PDF study guides and reference sheets that go along with every one of those videos, almost 200 videos at this point. Plus a lesson browser um, for a la carte learning. The lesson browser tracks what you've done and what you haven't done. You don't have to take a whole course you, or a whole module. You can just take this video and that video, and it tracks it and tells you what you've done. And when you're done, they even have quizzes so you can check how well you did. The lesson browser keeps track of that too. So you can say, here's, I watched this video, I took this quiz, you can match it all up and say, I need to go back and look at that. But if you don't know where to go, if you just want to start from the ground up, you can use their modules. One of their first one is Intro to Linux. It takes you all the way back to when when Linus wrote uh, an email to a news group and said, hey, I'm creating my own version of Minix. Uh, and then he, he walks you through the history, tells you about uh, how how Linux came to be, and then more importantly, actually start learning stuff. This module is a collection of courses. So you start with, with videos, you roll the videos into courses, you roll the courses into modules, and they have the Intro to Linux module. They also have the LPIC Level 1 certification module. Those are the two I know of off the top of my head. I'm sure there are others out there. They're constantly working on all this stuff. And you can get in on the ground floor of this for only 14 bucks. Excuse me, for only a dollar, for 14 days. So for a dollar, you'll get a 14 day free trial. Now, in the past, I've said it was an unlimited free trial. Uh, they've, uh, I, I'm guessing they had some people take advantage of that. So for your $1, you get to, to uh, download up to 14 videos. Uh, and then they cut you off. And you can uh, you also look at the PDFs and that sort of stuff. But that's plenty of time for you to figure out if you're ready to, to dive in. And then when you're really ready to plunge the plunge in and open your wallet up and just pay through the nose for it, how about 19 bucks a month? Really? Who can't afford 19 bucks a month? Buy one less pizza 
and and you got it. So uh, for 19 bucks a month, you have access to all this this learning. But if you want to group your your payments, you can buy a quarter for only 38 dollars. So that's basically two buy two months get one free. So you buy a quarter, you get three months of learning for only 38 dollars. When you go there, use the code Everyday Linux. Let them know you heard about it right here. LinuxAcademy.com. Yeah, and you know this is one of those things. You know, I'm all about the free stuff, but if you want quality, sometimes you just got to pay. You know, we talked about purchasing Spinrite earlier because it's about the best thing there is out there, and so uh, I don't mind paying for that. The same thing here with um, this. You know, there's other places that are like ninety nine dollars a month. Like I just did a quick search for Linux training, and I found a site I can get for ninety nine dollars a month or a thousand dollars a year for basically the same stuff and this is a site i'm familiar with i've used them uh in times past and i don't really get as much as i get at the linux academy so he is really bargain pricing this in if you want in the it field and you can't afford four years for college you know or some six month technical training program that crams you full of stuff without any real world application you can get in here for less than twenty dollars a month you can get in and in one month you could be competent to know what people are talking about and in two months you would be familiar or even you know and by the end of three months you've mastered and again mastering in the computer field is kind of a misnomer because there's always something new to learn and you never know everything but you can get very competent advanced level in just a few months using this site if you're willing to put the work in because you're not just memorizing stuff you're actually being walked through real world examples things you would actually do on a job as you're learning this and if you get and you know if you have to ask a lot of questions there's the there's the uh, forum and the community there but you can re-watch the videos they're broken down into short segments that are easy to digest it is very much worth um, it if you want to be a command line godfather you know and if you leave the gooiness for the linux command line i would suggest this has the portal uh, and if you listen to leo laporte's uh, podcast you know that he's recently started advertising a, a, a competing a competing service to this um and i can assure you their base model prices uh, are significantly more than the Linux Academy, and they don't offer the PDF study guides. They don't offer the lesson browser. They don't offer the downloadable content and the forums. They're just videos. So um, there's nobody out there who can compete with the Linux Academy in in the combination of quality and price. There there may be people who are as good, but they're way more expensive. And there may be people who are cheaper, but they're not as good. So where the where the nexus of of quality and price meet is the LinuxAcademy.com. Yep. There you go. So on to our tech news of the week. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we've we kind of been talking about this off and on. Uh, uh, the inter- my, internet might someday not even be need servers, uh, says a new study. Yes, this is, um, you know, and this is especially kind of a follow up to what we talked about last week. But instead, it would just rely on massive uh, peer-to-peer stuff. Um a prototype was developed 
in this project called Pursuit, which um, is from Rep- European research institutes. But I just thought it was kind of cool, and I would suggest you uh, kind of check it out and read it because it's kind of their take on what the future of computing would look like, minus the humor and visuals we tried to throw in there. But just imagine it where you're not going to some server, you're actually connected, and it becomes a true internet where you know what you need is on Joe's computer, and Joe is getting this off of Sam's drive, and over here, Susie's got this part, and so it's a true interconnected world that is being hosted, and I, I guess it's somehow smart smart routers or something, but I mean, there's a lot of uh, information that would be shared back and forth for this to take hold, but anyway, whenever I came across this, I went, hey, you know, this kind of ties in with what we talked about last week, and I just wanted to give it to the audience as a chance to look through and... Uh, you know, so they, they could get like some professional type people's opinions of it. <laughs> yeah, that certainly doesn't qualify as us, uh, but that's okay. Um, I, I um, want, uh, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, you know, that I don't know if that would really work all that well because you still need to have host files for this stuff somewhere because otherwise P2P doesn't quite work. You know, someone's got to be hosting base. You know, the base of the file. So, if it's everything is P to P, well, it kind of uh, it kind of makes the internet like um, the old phone network of yesteryears. You know, the, you're you're basically looking up somebody's number on the yellow pages, and then you're going off to their machine to get it. So you're not going to some central repository. The only central repository of information is where stuff is located. So it's not hosted. It's just like, hey, I'm over here and I've got this. And hey, I'm over here and I've got this. So the internet becomes a giant Craigslist uh, as opposed to a Walmart. Interesting. You know, the, the So it's the barter system for the internet. I like it. Yeah. So we're going to go back. Yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> All right, moving on. This is a story that was in our notes, but I don't think we talked about it because I I was skeptical of it at the time, um, and and it turns out I'm not the only one. Uh, a, a researcher said that for the last three years he's been battling a BIOS virus that can leap through the air onto machines that are air gapped, meaning they don't have a network connection or any kind of direct connection. And he hypothesized that it was um, uh, ultrasonic frequencies or infrasonic frequencies that uh, that we can't hear, but th- that are traveling through the microphone and rewriting the BIOSes on his laptops. He says he, he thinks it's a, a targeted attack because he's been dealing with it, but he hasn't seen other people do it. And he published conclusive proof that this is it. This is my virus. Um, here's the evidence of it. And, and, you know, Ars Technica put it, printed it there and, and people ran with it and said, oh, no, it's the end of the world. And then some real researchers took a look at it and said, um, maybe not. Yeah, the neat thing about this is I read this story and then later that day I was listening to Security Now and I was like, wait a minute. I just read those exact words that Steve said. So I paused, I paused my podcast and I went back over. I was like, he, he, if he wasn't reading this article, he was reading whatever this article was based off of. And I just thought it was, I was just really interested in the story. I don't, you know, exist or not. 
I don't know. I really hope it doesn't because this would be scary if it was true. But the guy who came up with it, he's the one who hold uh, hosts the um, pwn to own competition, and he. It's not like I'm out there claiming that. This is a a well-respected, well-trusted guy in the field who was saying this and has he's published his uh, logs. People are looking at it and going, um, all this can be explained by normal behavior. There's nothing here. And so he's apparently given some uh, machines to other people who are coming in to pick them up. And we'll see, like I say, whether it, I just thought the concept of it was interesting in a, that's kind of freaky, but from a technological standpoint, it's kind of amazing. But uh, so, you know, and I thought we talked about it last week. It might have been one of those things we talked about before the show started. Yeah. I, um, I th- and so I I think I cut it because I didn't believe it. But we did talk. Okay. About yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I, I, I made the comment that this sounds like creepypasta um, where it's a, a good spin on a, a on a horror type story because I don't. Yeah, it just seems to be a legend or a lore or just a nice spooky story to get people all riled up for Halloween. Well, the thing about BIOS is BIOS isn't, it's designed not to be writable. Um, and so to to infect BIOS would be a, a Herculean feat. And if somebody could do that and had that power... Would they really target this one um, hacker uh, and just mess with him? Because it, it says that you know he never says that he's doing anything malicious. It's just annoying. Um, and and yeah. here's here's a, just a, a little bit of of a, a well respected um, guy in the uh, industry. He wrote back to him and said, "I've looked at your BIOS dump, your Procmon logs, font files, disk images. I see nothing to suggest there's a, that there's anything suspicious here." These are all either entirely consistent with what I would expect to see or have very simple explanations that do not require a sophisticated attacker. My guess is it's just a combination of stress and healthy paranoia causing you to connect unrelated events. And then he goes on to to explain in relatively explicit detail um, what's going on. And then at the very end, he says, I get the impression you're not going to believe me, but please at least think about taking a break from this. <laughs> right. So I uh, I think it was much ado about nothing, but it's it's interesting uh, saga nonetheless. Um, yeah, and I, you know I will I don't know how much more coverage we'll get on this show, but I mean I'm going to continue to follow it because I would love to see you know it's like oh my gosh there was this one thing that happened three years ago and I couldn't explain it so since then everything that's happened fell into that you know um, I've been a total idiot or you know one guy got this laptop and it infected his entire network and now he's joined the uh, bad BIOS bandwagon and see how see what happens and what the ultimate issue will be I just like I say I thought it was cool from a uh, technologically possible kind of uh, whatever the word I'm, I can't think of now. <laughs> so, yes. All right. Okay, and moving on from that story, as interesting as that is, uh, let's move on to something again near and dear to the heart of the command line godfather. Happy birthday, Steam client on Linux. Yes, that's probably the the best thing I've ever heard back on. November 6th, when this was originally published, that Valve made available the first Steam Linux beta 
it was a closed beta and very and and there were very few people that could have it. Did you but get there it? were pictures? No, not in the first runs. No, I I got mine on the second set of releases. So I got it pretty early, but not as early as a lot of people have. Um, it, it's really cool. I can't wait to see what happens. Supposedly later on in the year, next year, we're supposed to see more uh, more traction with the steam box to see what where that what that's going to end up looking like so yes today's a happy day for me <laughs> happy birthday steam client on linux you're one year old today starting to Yay. pull up and uh making sounds yeah uh, and here's a project that's near and dear to my heart, perhaps even more so than Steam is to the command line godfather. I am a GIMP user and have been for, gosh, half my life now. I, I found this thing early on, uh, and I love the GIMP. Um, but they have made a decision that I got to say, frankly, I support wholeheartedly, and we'll see uh, what others uh, say about that. They have decided to leave SourceForge meaning they'll no longer uh, host their files there. They'll no longer host their bug tracker there. They'll no longer host their forums uh, there. They are going to uh, do everything themselves because they believe that um, uh, SourceForge has traveled down some roads that, that are inconsistent with their open source beliefs. Well. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, we talked about download.com did the same kind of thing a couple of years ago, uh, where basically you're not downloading, in this case, you're not downloading GIMP, you're downloading SourceForge's installer for the GIMP that bundles it with all kinds of crapware. Uh, you know, for, an, and I'm not saying it is this one, but like, you know, the ask.com toolbar or, you know, weather bug or screw up mypc.com 7.0 with new bug crashes um you know and it's not just that it's you know it's like in order to download the gimp click here in font size two halfway down the page but surrounding it is download now download this in the giant with the button that's really a google ad placed on the screen and so you really have to have a degree in forensic anthropology to even find the link to download what you wanted and not all of the ad crap on the page which i understand sourceforge takes money to operate and you know we're we're cheap and we only download free stuff so you know we're not going to pay them for it but i don't know that this is the way to do it is to bundle a great product where i'm not installing the product i'm installing their application launcher for the product and it tries and it's one of those you can't just next 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 you got to redefine print okay on this screen i gotta click no and then the third yes and then the fourth leave me alone i'm tired of this crap to get yeah. to the next screen to do it you know it's so anyway that's kind of uh that's yeah, kind of what and, it does. And to be fair, you know, we understand that you got to make money. As Brian Lunduk puts it, programmers got to eat. Uh, so, you know, SourceForge uh, started out uh, offering this free service to open source products, uh, and they're still offering this free service, but it has grown so huge uh, that, you know, they can't, they can't just fork out the money on their own anymore. They need to bring in some revenue. And they've uh, looked at different ways of doing that over the years because it's it's free to the uh, project and it's free to the end user. So where are they going to get their money? Well, they turn to ads. Ads in themselves, not such a big thing, but the ads got more and more unscrupulous over time. 
and then to when they added the 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 download the bundling the software actually changing what I put up there to 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 download that's what would was would be the final straw for me and was for GIMP. So I uploaded yeah. this file and said this is my installer. They altered that file without asking me and now offer that as the installer that's just that's wrong that's you've breached a contract there at, at that point you have you are now now no longer doing what you said you would do and i'm done with you that that's my paraphrase of what the gimp community said and i totally agree with them well and, and there's also a security issue there because if they're gonna if, you know most people when they download a file they're assuming that the file is safe now if SourceForge's company is breaking that packaging open editing it and then redistributing it, you know, re redisputing it. That's not the right word, but there's a problem there. It. Thank you. But there's a problem there because, you know, say I'm not saying SourceForge is doing this either, but you know, let's say somebody ends up being on the wrong side of a, of a hacker attack or one of their technologists is a, a, a internet bad guy and they start bundling in spyware. That isn't an option in the uh, the the installer to install things. It just sneaks its way in. This is a a, a huge problem, um, and I I recommend I, I commend you know Gimp for for doing this and to taking on their server load on their own. Um, I I hope people I, I know the Gimp project is going to need financial support by doing this, and I hope people step up and and help support this great program. You know, another company that is in in dire need of financial support, they're just not doing well. They don't have uh, enough money and they're struggling, is Microsoft. Uh, and uh, one way that you can support Microsoft is by buying Android. Yes, uh, and, you know, the uh, listener feedback referenced this earlier, but, yeah, they get a little over $2 billion a year in revenue from Android patent royalties. <laughs> just, uh, it's like, like the main picture on the page is like Steve Ballmer with his tongue sticking out. And it's a very funny picture. Um, but yeah, so they, and the thing is in this sense, they're like a patent troll. So of that 2 billion, like over 95% of it is pure profit margin. So it's all, and this is one of the reasons I don't really care that people are suing Microsoft for, um, uh, you know, patent trolls are suing Microsoft because they it, they turn around and they exhibit the same behavior uh, in other ways. At least that's my impression of them. But it's one of those ways that because of the money they receive from this and the way they just um, the way they report their earnings and stuff, they're really able to hide the massive amount of money they lose uh, from like Xbox, uh, Windows Phone, and Skype and stuff like that. So you know they lose about two and a half billion on all those things, but because of this, it's a much smaller loss. And you know people talk about how awesome the Microsoft gaming console is compared to Sony's or how it's on parity. Well, the only reason it's on parity is because Android patent royalties are substituting the operating loss, and like Sony couldn't afford to lose on the P on the PlayStation, what Microsoft loses on Xbox. Indeed. Um, at least that's that's one way to look at it. And yeah, Microsoft makes like two billion off of patent royalties from Android, which, when you think about it, that's really kind of amazing because Android in and of itself is free. So software patents must die. End of story. Yes. 
Uh, but was. lest you think Amen. Microsoft doesn't get anything right, their latest version of Chrome is actually top of the list uh, in thwarting certain types of malware. You mean IE? What did I say? You said Chrome. I'm you sorry. said Chrome. I'm sorry. IE, yes. Yeah. Yes, there was a... Uh, hold on. There's there's a smooth transition. Say the wrong software. That'll, that'll mess up the transition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hold ah! Did Firefox crash or is it my? It's just your Windows machine. Seth. Okay, so a new social uh, <laughs> a, uh, security. No, it, firm. it's it's Firefox crashed on my machine because my Chrome is working fine, but uh, Firefox just decided it didn't want to. Maybe so, you should yeah, be using IE10, uh, and then it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, true, I would be more secure, but then nothing would work because <laughs> IE10 freaking sucks. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, a, a particular type of attack called socially engineered malware, SEM attacks, um, uh, when uh, a, a um, security firm decided to put things to the test, uh, they found that IE10 actually beats everybody when it comes to foiling these types of attacks. Uh, using social engineering to distribute malware uh, is a, is something that hackers like to do, and there's a good reason that they do. It works. Um, and uh, Microsoft has, uh, you know, a lot of browsers are doing this. Their, uh, Chrome, for example, will will say this site has, is, you know, it's on our known list. Are you sure you want to go there? Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what uh, Microsoft is doing with IE, but uh, they're doing it right, according to this uh, organization, whose name. Yeah, and well, what the what they're doing since nothing works with IE10, of course they're going to block <laughs> the drive. Perfect downloads. The, the so, phishing yeah. website you tried to go to won't render properly, therefore you're safe. Right, but yeah, apparently it blocked um, 89% in this um, socially engineered malware attack category. Uh, Chrome did 76%, Safari 53, and Firefox 52. Uh, now, this is different from phishing, in which some of the other browsers are better than Internet Explorer. But yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things. Microsoft, I mean, I love to make fun of them. I'll make fun of anybody just because I enjoy doing that. But they obviously at the very least get parts of it right because they wouldn't be so big if everything was complete and utter crap you know it's um i just like to make fun of them whenever they mess up but i gotta admit they can write much better code than me so and it's nss labs i couldn't find that that's the name of the company that did that uh apparently they're an independent security research company independent meaning microsoft pays them under the table instead of overtly well no that's, right. that's not fair um <laughs> What what's interesting? This is uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's just cool. Um, the uh, Western Digital, not exactly a top name in hard drives anymore. They used to be. Uh, has come up with a new uh, technique uh, for making uh, disk capacity triple uh, and giving you up to six terabytes on a standard three and a half inch disk. And that technique wow. will also make you talk funny. <laughs> Yes, they are inserting helium into their drives. And these are not like solid state drives. These are like the disk spinning platters. Uh, it uses less power as well. And it apparently uses less wear on the machine as well. But and they're more expensive. So it's not like you can go out and buy one for your laptop or your desktop. But in a data center that 
you know, requires high speed and, and lots of storage, these would be perfect for them where, you know, you need high uptime and high availability. Yeah, so the use of helium rather than air allows additional storage platters to be squeezed into the design, and it also reduces power consumption and weight, um, and I believe it also helps on keeping the heat down. On and them. the reason this so. works is the same reason that helium makes you talk funny. It's less dense than the oxygen-nitrogen mixture in the, in the atmosphere, and so the disks, as they're spinning, have less resistance because there's less density. Uh, the, the, the medium through which they're spinning is, has less density um also it has a harder time generating heat and and keeping that heat because there's just not as much stuff there uh when it's helium so it's not that they are able to put more electrons on a disc or anything they can just put more discs into the same size space so instead of five they mm -hmm. can put seven uh in and that that what that's what makes the difference and it uses less power again there's less resistance to the spinning and less uh less heat so uh it's a simple thing you know, just uh, grab some helium, uh, which is nice because, you know, uh, global supplies of helium are dwindling. So it's a good idea to go ahead and use more for, for hard drives. Well, I think this explains why they're dwindling. Western Digital has been taking it all <laughs> in their research. So now that they've got the problem fixed, uh, helium supplies will probably uh, begin to rise. But I'm bummed. The, oh, yeah. The well, cost um, of helium has gone way up uh, in case you, I don't know if you've noticed, but now just getting like a helium balloon filled, one balloon will cost you two bucks. Um, right. Because the, the cost of helium is going up because uh, we can, of course, recapture it from the air, but that's expensive and difficult. Uh, the stores that we have locked in the ground, uh, we're pretty much using up. Uh, the Large Hadron Collider and other things like it that use hundreds of thousands of gallons of it per day. Uh, are certainly uh, partly to blame for that. But, you know, Darn that science. before it's all gone, let's stick some in the hard drives. Now, it never goes anywhere. Actually, I think it may be helium. There's some element, I can't remember what it is, that is so lightweight it actually floats out into space because the, 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 the gravity doesn't hold it in the atmosphere, and it may be helium. So it may be that once we let it go, it's actually gone forever. I'm not sure. We'll have to go lasso a not. comet or something. Uh, but moving on to something a little more interesting, Linus Linus um, has decided that it's time for Linux to say goodbye to 32-bit. Yeah, the um, he just basically acknowledged that hey, moving forward, we're not really focusing on the 32-bit kernel. Uh, they're not abandoning it. There will still be a 32-bit kernel, but pretty much 64-bit is what they're focusing on. Just keeping Linux moving forward. Now, this doesn't mean, like I say, that 32-bit is going away because, you know, the kernels that are out are still going to be supported for years, uh, the long-term release things. And just because a kernel is old doesn't mean it can't be used anymore. Um, so, yeah, uh, Linus, uh, the general feeling among developers is newer hardware is more important, in this case, 64-bit support than old 32-bit. Um, so, just 32-bit is less important. So, and not all Linux distros are 64-bit yet, but they probably will be moving forward. All right. That's pretty uh, and much a no-brainer. And it's time to give some kudos to Ubuntu. We have ragged on it already in this show, and we're going to a little later on. But now, Ubuntu wins an award. Unfortunately, yes. it's probably not an award they wanted to win. Yes. Um, they won in the Big Brother Awards in Australia. Austria. Ubuntu, or Austria, sorry, yeah. Um, 
it's the whole Amazon shopping feature. It wins the anti-privacy award. So congratulations, Ubuntu. You are still a trendsetter. The uh, the Big Brother Awards are held annually since 1999. Hands out gongs to governments, companies, persons, and projects deemed to, quote, have done the most to invade personal privacy. Congratulations, Ubuntu. You win. <laughs> nice. And whoever thought Ubuntu was the winner, now they are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Ubuntu. I, you know, random groups of grouchy people hand out awards all the time. I'm sure we get awards for longest worst podcast ever. Um, and that's okay. But uh, it, it's just fun. If, if they would send us a link, we would cover that on that's the show, right. by we the way. We would do that. So, <laughs> yeah. So if you want to publicize your awards, uh, nominate us or let us win something, and we yeah. will give it due coverage. So don't, you know, that's just uh, for everybody out there. Yeah, most ignorant host on the internet. I'll wear that mantle. I'm fine with that. Um, I'll finally, fight you for it. <laughs> this week in history, November 12th, 1990, Tim Berners-Lee created the internet. Well, yes, uh, and Al Gore is still fighting him <laughs> in court to this day, but he actually published the formal proposal for the World Wide Web. Um, Very cool. Yeah, the, the the distinction there, by the way, is the internet is the thing. The cables and the routers and the web is the the killer app that runs on the thing. But most people, when you say web, they mean internet. When you say internet, they mean web. So that's why I said that. But Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the internet, as he's known, uh, literally created the concept of, of hyperlinking and this web that goes worldwide of different uh, – of documents hypertext this whole thing it was all him somebody had to invent that right it turned out to yep. be yeah. Tom Berners Lee thank you sir <laughs> we wouldn't have this lovely thing that we do every week if it wasn't for you and in an effort yeah think of how much harder it would be to actually find porn you would have to drive to the CD <laughs> part of, you would have to drive to the CD part of town and wear your uh, overcoat and kind of with sunglasses and look down as you just kind of pointed to the clerk which but one you, you know, wanted blockbuster so, would still be in business uh they sure would <laughs> yeah way to go you killed blockbuster <laughs> oh when I was a kid, if I wanted to see boobs, I had to drive down to the strip club to do it. <laughs> Uphill both ways. <laughs> All right. In the interest I think we of just fell down a hill. <laughs> In the interest of keeping this uh, show under three and a half hours, I'm going to skip over the Because Mark Loves Numbers section and move straight into the discussion, which is uh, uh, the question to be answered is what happens when a distro fails to deliver. Most notably, sorry Ubuntu, you're in the firing line again. Canonical made big promises about Ubuntu 13.10 and and failed to deliver on them. Yeah, they did. Um, 13.10 is supposed to be their biggest hurrah was the fact that it was supposed to have Mer as their display manager and no longer have X. So they were really pushing this down everybody's throat for months and then saucy salamander came out and no myrrh it's basically 13.10 is more or less just a bug fix release and nothing really awesome about it um 
I don't know. I, 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 it came up and as a discussion with a bunch of buddies of mine and you know, did canonical bite off more than it can chew with this idea? I mean, really replacing X, that's a pretty heavy a big task. Yeah. And they, they've, how long have they been working on murder? What a year? No, no. What? Three years, two years. It, it, Something yeah, I'm that, not sure. It's been a while. Yeah, but uh, but how long has X been being worked on? <laughs> yeah, a lot longer. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is a big deal. What's going to, I mean, does this hurt Canonical? Does this hurt the, the developers at all? Do, do you guys feel any neg- neg- you know, negativity about this? I thought when Canonical came out and said, we're going to have a six-month release cycle, that it, would, that it was going to bite them. Yeah, eventually. Now, I understand the concept that programmers need deadlines, that if you just say finish it when you finish it, particularly programmers who aren't paid, who are, who are spare time guys, it's never going to happen. So I get that they had this goal of setting deadlines, but promising to deliver an entirely new OS every six months, that's that's a big promise. Um and and you know they failed to deliver in in a number of ways. I mean, the first version was called Hoary Hedgehog because it was a it was ugly, but it was we have a deadline. We're going to get it out there. We're going to make it so. Um, yeah. And then you know I can think in my experience of like three or four versions that should just never have happened. Just this oh, yeah. one wasn't ready yet. Just skip it and move on to the next one. But they have this artificial this this artificial timeline. Every six months we're going to do something. Uh, and then I think the same thing was with me or that they had to put some heat under the programmers and say, we got to set a deadline on this or it'll never happen. And I think maybe they knew they were never going to meet that deadline. But then why were they pushing so hard? That's what, that's what bothers me is the fact that they pushed and pushed and pushed and, and you know, the banners were flying mer 13.10 and then there's no mer. So I don't know for me personally, it, it doesn't hurt me at all. Cause I don't, use Ubuntu or Ubuntu derivatives, but it's one of those things that I personally don't recommend them because of, you know, like you were saying, Mark, where there's issues with releases where, yeah, this release, you just skip, pretend it doesn't exist and you move on. But that also comes back to other distros, you know, such as the ones that knock their their release date back over and over and over. So, And <laughs> the, the, they were we're still waiting for you know uh, I can't remember I just blanked on what it was anyway never there's there's a distro that that I've been waiting for for like three years now they keep saying they're gonna have have it and they just never do is that like the one of the enlightenment ones because that's that's another big one that does that but Fedora is the biggest one that I always I get a little cranky about because I watched. I don't think it was this release. I think it was Beefy that had four knockbacks. It, it was knocked back four different times. So it put the release date almost, I think it was a couple of months behind. So, you know, does that hurt? Do, I mean, do you guys feel any issues about that? Well, I think, you know, I don't have a problem with their six-month release cycle. I really kind of think they need to tweak it to where... One is a major release, and then one is a bug fix release. If they would do that, I think it would take a lot of the heat off. And in one hand, you know, if you continue to promise things and you can't deliver, well, eventually you're going to get that rep, and then nobody's going to listen to you, and then nobody's going to use you, uh, and you know, you'll become 
it just it just won't be a good thing. But on the other hand, I'm glad they didn't just try to throw it out there and just totally screw up their product by putting, you know, by pulling the gnome three. Um, or so unity. at least they had the sense to to not do it. I would rather see them take the heat for not doing it than to uh, just complete and utter crap it. I mean, at some point, just because of the way Linux works, you'll put it out there. It won't be great, but then people will use it and tweak it and it'll get good. But it's got to be a certain level before that happens. And so, you know, kudos to them for failing to deliver. Uh, you know, he said mockingly, but also kudos for realizing that it's not at a level it needs to be so we're not going to we're not going to piss off the community even more by giving garbage you know i think a lot of other projects you know um have a the, the, it's sort of become the open source way of doing things is you have a stable version and, and a development version and then as things are stable you you put them out there uh, and and I don't see why you can't do that with you know with Mir, uh, you know, and and with with Ubuntu as a whole. There, there's a stable thread and there's an unstable thread. They've just sort of done away. I, I mean, they kind of did that with the long term support, and they've said you know they, they've it's sort of the same as calling this stable and this uh, unstable. But I, I really think they would be better served by having two strands and and moving yeah, yeah. things up as they're ready instead of arbitrary release dates. This is ready, so we're moving it from from unstable to stable. Um, so, but then that boils down. That boils us down to the next thought: is our roll, w- rolling releases? Because that's what you're basically telling it. That's what you're basically, you know, outlining there, Mark. So, is, is that is that the next, the better step to go to a rolling release? I, I think it's a combination of the two. You have a rolling release with with the the long term support. That we're gonna okay. we're gonna set a date to say at this point we declare it done and we're not gonna mess with it, and then we start another rolling release for the next twenty four months uh, or whatever, and then we're gonna fix everything we can in that. And if it's not ready, we're gonna leave it in the development chain, and then we're gonna say this is ready, this is long term support. I, I think the mm-hmm. hybrid model works best. So taking the difference between Arch and Debian and mashing them together. Yeah. The, or I guess the other, I guess the, but I mean, honestly, how many other rolling releases are good besides Arch? Um, I haven't played with Open Susie's Tumbleweed, which is supposed to be an open a rolling release as well. Um, I, I could not handle a rolling release. Just it, it would blow my mind if today something worked. I did an update tomorrow. Something would work. How do you know how I know that would blow my mind? Cause freaking windows does it all the time. And it freaked and blows my mind. Windows is yeah. a rolling release and we all hate it for that very reason. So no, I don't want a rolling release. Yeah. But also, you know, Mark Shuttleworth's vision for Ubuntu, like becoming an enterprise type player, you have to have something other like, Okay, we're going to do a six-month cycle. There has to be some type of solid bedrock to do. I think one thing they could do, and Chris, you might know this: do they? Is there a mirror package that you can upload to Ubuntu to kind of see what they're trying to do? That you know, that it might be developmental, but an official uh, canonical package where you could try um, the current version of Ubuntu with that. 
Do you not know, that I've, you know not that? that I've not that I found. I haven't, but I also don't dig very deep to find something like that. That's when, when that's like the uh, you know the only way I would do something like that is in a VM, and that doesn't work right. really for testing. You know that you know your X server or MER needs to be tested on on true hardware, not virtualized hardware, um, because there's right. a lot of magic you can do with the virtualizer. So, um. In that type of stuff, when you're playing that level of of on the edge of the map where the monsters live, I don't know anybody that really, unless you're a developer, that would have not not just the willpower but the the stamina to handle playing in that type of a field, really. But you know, I mean, it would be kind of cool to say this is what we're trying to make happen, and you know, but know that you know this is totally it's beta it's not something you want to put on your main machine but there are people who would like to spin it up you know either have a machine sitting out there that in old you know that they're not using every day or possibly another hard drive pop out their hard drive pop in this other one and see what it looks like and go hey this is kind of cool i could see it being really neat or you know this makes vista look good kind of thing so <laughs> If they had something like that where, and again, I really, I don't play much in that space. I like to stick with, hey, this is ready for release. I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. But I know there are people out there who like, I wonder how this Mer thing will work. And if there was an official beta or something of it that, you know, it might not kind of like, it's not really a rolling release thing and it's not really officially supported, but kind of a nightly build type deal you know this this is what we're looking to do and this is where we're at on it i if if there was something like that to supplement and not necessarily supplement but it kind of gives you a take on what the developers are thinking and where they're heading um yeah i found a couple of different there are a couple of different places you can find a daily image for myrrh um and i don't i'm just trying to i mean it it's pretty, yeah, okay, so it's a PPA, so you would be able to put it on just about anything. Okay. So you, I mean, you, and there is a way to remove it once you, once you install it, You there is a way to remove it. So you could, I mean, you could play with it now to see if it's where it's at, but man, that's, you'd have to have a dedicated rig, a testing rig for something like this, because you would not be, right. I Personally, for with my like my laptop and my desktops that I use on a day to day business, there's no way I would install Mer just as a playground, not on one of my my live rigs. It would have to be on a on on a dead machine that is not being used for anything other than testing. VM. Well, you could VM it, but there again, you're playing with virtualized hardware, and does you know. Is Mer gonna behave the same on a virtualized hardware as it does on a, on on traditional hardware? Because I've seen machines, I've seen virtual images that work great in a VM, but when you ghost them out or clone them out to a you know, traditional hardware, they fall on their head. Yeah. So that's that's the problem when you're changing an X server. You know, you're changing your display server from Mer to or from X to Mer or Wayland when it comes when it 
that's something else we haven't heard anything from. Where, where's Where's Waylon? We haven't seen that yet either. I think he's in jail, isn't he? <laughs> now, he's in the Country Music Hall of Fame. He's been there for a while. Uh, to, to go back to your initial question, um, Chris, you said do, do do things like this hurt distros? I think the answer is no. I think all in all, people who are Ubuntu lovers are Ubuntu lovers, and and if they pull back me or they say, well, they had their reasons, I'm okay with it. I don't think anybody was just chomping at the bit, except maybe the Mir developers, to see Mir uh, become center stage. Um, you know, when it's ready, it's ready. When it's not, it's not. And I think for the most part, you know, district like Fedora, you, you're not going to stop loving Fedora just because they're uh, taking longer to release something. You might get miffed at them, but when they finally do release it, you'll celebrate and say, yay, it's finally here. So, no, I don't think it has any long-term uh, damage. I think it's just short-term PR support. Mm. I mean, PR okay. issue. Well, it's just something that, you know, that came up and I thought it would be a good thing to talk about because that's... You know, and I've always played with the idea of trying to go to an op- a rolling release to to not have to deal with the milestones that everyone is dropping for like Ubuntu's every six months, Open Susie's nine months, Fedora's air quotes for six months. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm with you, Mark. I can't go with a rolling release either. I, I just, I need a machine that works. And when it blows up in my face because I updated no, that should and and not any clean way of rolling off an update. That's something that needs to be fixed. If, if unless there's something that I don't know about when it comes to rolling releases, if there's a way to roll back a broken patch easily. All right. Any other thoughts on that? I I mean that was a brief discussion, but we didn't expect it to be a long one either. No, not really. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. It kind of back to your original question. If they if they are continually doing it, then there will be some long term damage. I think because again, it gets to the point to where you don't really care what they. I mean, then they become like the politician distribution. Oh, hey, they promise they're going to save the world and reduce energy consumption, and you know, all of a sudden, my exhaust from my computer is going to smell like roses. But they're just <laughs> saying that. You know, I'll believe what I'll believe it when I install it and see it. So if they want to remain relevant in the Linux discussion, they need to police themselves and stop biting off more than they can chew because they will get to the point to where nobody will care anymore. Um, you know, and it's like, it's like, Hey, I wonder what the stupid conspiracists are thinking. Hey, let's ask canonical. They're always making wild outlandish claims. And, you know, I, I would hate to see them come to that because then it's just no fun to dog them anymore. well and then that also brings up another thought though is ubuntu has done you know they have done leaps and bounds for bringing linux to the the everyday person but they've been doing a lot of massive changes under their name you know underneath their flagship you know the the unity thing and now the issue with uh mer and not having that out i mean these are a couple of big things that have been that have fallen short you know, I I know they're still relevant, but if they keep falling short on promises, it's going to end up hurting them, especially in the server market. Yeah, I mean, the, the handful of people who depend on Ubuntu in the in the server marketplace, and then yeah, they, they might move somewhere else. But 
I think those people are already on Red Hat because they already have some. Because you know, right now anyway, Canonical doesn't have any any kind of guarantees, any kind of you know um, promise of support or uptime. Uh, people who want that go to go to Red Hat. Um, so yeah. you know, and I know that Canonical has made noises about wanting to do that, but they haven't yet. And maybe maybe they're they're trying to to get the horse in front of the cart before they take off. You know, they want to make sure that they can actually deliver that consistently before they, they try to. Yeah. Right. So, you know, on the the desktop, the desktop audience is both incredibly fickle and highly, um, uh, faithful at the same time. You Mm -hmm. know, uh, the people who love Ubuntu, love Ubuntu and they love Ubuntu and they love Ubuntu and nothing's going to change that. The people who don't care won't care. There's just another reason to mock them. I think it's yeah. really hard to take somebody from an Ubuntu lover to an Ubuntu hater. I mean, if if Unity didn't do it, nothing will. <laughs> yeah, you got a point there. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll I'll concede to that one. I will agree with you, but I don't know. I'm just curious to find out what happens, especially with something like the Steambox coming. You know, that's going to be a a a it's a non-Ubuntu issue, but that's another thing that's going to show up is are they going to be based in X? Are they going to be based in Mer? Are they going to be based in Wayland? That's a much more interesting topic. What happens if the steam box fails to deliver and they can't keep their promises? You know, there's some financial, there's something writing on that. Uh, but you can go, you can still use steam lots of other places. And if it works everywhere, but on the steam box, then you've got issues. Or if they do an update and it only breaks the steam box, um, that's that's a more interesting uh, question there, uh, taking it out of just the distro and the people who who are building products on a distro and who are relying on that. Uh, yeah, you know, like the the Untangle people. Uh, you know, if Debian flops, Untangle is built on Debian, and their system yeah. updates automatically. And if if a Debian flop crashes, uh, uh, Untangle boxes all over the world. Oof. People get people that gets somebody's attention. So that that's that's an interesting discussion at that point. Um, when 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 you I don't know that there are a lot of people relying on on Canonical and on Ubuntu, but if you start you know going a little higher upstream, you know if Debian does a major flop, that that's going to send ripples through Ubuntu and and its community and through all the other communities. So that that changes my view a little bit. That, that would be a great thing for a future podcast <laughs> i don't know i maybe yeah maybe we need to need do need to examine our reliance on you know like the big really it's the big two now there's right there, there's really not even uh the big three anymore there's there's for the most part there's red hat and debian and yeah and the the entire Linux community relies on those guys, and there's others. You know, there's Puppy, and there's there's um, you know there's others out there, but uh, they're you know blips on the radar. Well, I I think there's still three personally. Um, I I will agree with you on that one, Mark. The Ubuntu or Debian, the Debian tree, the Red Hat tree, and then the Source tree, because you can't discount the source. That's true. Yeah, so I mean that I, I don't know if you could if that's really uh another tree or if it's like the you know the 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 mother tree. It's what it's what everybody <laughs> comes from. Um 
Okay. Yeah, I guess you could go that way. You know, having the source at the base and then Red Hat and Deb from them. Yeah. I think that's a fair fair way of looking at it. I mean, Sousa um, used to kind of, yeah. I used to call them one of the three, but Sousa is pretty much now just Debian. Um, Red Hat. I mean, sure. They're, they're RPMs. And, and they, the, the differentiations went away, you know, and then there was, there was, Mandriva Mandrake Linux, you know, and that that was a derivative, and then it's kind of so. I mean, it's 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 now Red Hat or you know your RPM or Deb. That's it's yeah. kind of one of those two. Um, maybe what we need is is a whole new thing to come up. And, oh jeez, you know, and and <laughs> and change the world. Yeah, if only you had choice in the Linux market. <laughs> How much better would the world be <laughs> if you could pick a distro and not be tied to just one or two? We just we just need a little uh, um, fraction, fraction, little diversity. That's all. <laughs> yeah. What's the what's the word that that oh that Microsoft is always hitting Android with? I can't remember fragmentation. If there were there only a little more fragmentation in the Linux uh, world, uh, it might be <laughs> infinite diversity, infinite complexity. <laughs> Indeed. There you go. And and on that uh, trite bit of wisdom, I think it's time to jump on out of this and uh, let's move on to our tips of the week. And Chris kind of stole some, but that's all right. Uh, we'll let him oh. do it. Chris, what are your command line tips this week? Well, this week I figured, you know, we had the, the listener write in about Vim and Vi, and I figured, you know, people need choice. Maybe you're not a Vim or a Vi guy. But if you need to be able to edit things inside of a terminal session and you don't like Vim and you don't like Vi and you can install things, I don't I don't know if Nano is on everything anymore or if it's kind of on the majority of things. But Nano is another good command line level type um, tool and so is Emacs. I, I will bow down to them. They do have a good editor if you can learn Emacs. But Vim and Vi, Nano, and Emacs are usually the top four for most people when they're using a command line level text editor. There you go. And they're they're everywhere. They, I mean, if you've got an an X installed of any kind, you've got Vim, Vi, Nano, or Emacs already on it. Yep. So learn one of them because and you know, like Vim and Vi and a little of Nano. They all share similar commands. Those three are really, I would say, what? Kissing cousins? Close brothers? <laughs> um, Emacs is the only standoff. He's kind of on his own. But, you know, those VimVi and Nano are all pretty close to the same. And Emacs is a little bit different. But they all do the same job. And, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> look at the man page. Is is That's really the best way to do it sadly um mm -hmm. but you know anyway seth what wonderfulness have you got for us this week all you need is love and bacon uh bacontoday.com because sometimes you know why search the internet and look for a piece of bacon here and a piece of bacon there because it's kind of like if you were only allowed to eat one piece of bacon every two hours it's like as great as that would be, it would be like, but it's two hours, so I get another piece. <laughs> you can go to Bacon today, and they aggregate the entire Bacon web and put it in one place for you. There are recipes. There are Bacon novelties. There's Bacon in the news, Bacon books, Bacon shops, Bacon reviews. 
BaconToday.com. Terbaca Duckin. That's my favorite. The Terbaca Duckin. Wow. A, t- a chicken stuffed inside a, a duck, stuffed inside a turkey, and wrapped with bacon. Yes, please. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming um, to your Thanksgiving table, the Turbeka Duckin. <laughs> I, I don't even want to comprehend that one. That's just, oh my god! It's not. You see, the thing is, you really have to stuff it with bacon to get the full effect. <laughs> that only then can you can you Turbeka Duckin. <laughs> this should be the name of the episode, Turbeka Duckin. <laughs> yes, Turbeka Duckin. Wow. It just sounds good rolling off the Turbega Duckin. <laughs> I know, you could be arrested in five states for saying that. <laughs> it's it's a heart attack waiting. That's right. Oh. But if you gotta die, what a way to go. Turbega oh no kidding. Duckin. All right. Turbacon Duckin. Turbacon Duckin. No. Go so, go evil. It's the Turbacon Duckin. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Turbacon. Coming this Duncan. fall to a theater Duncan. near you. Turbacon Duncan. This time. Oh, no. We're going to have personal. Tom Cruise acting on it now. <laughs> oh. Hey, you know, if he would eat a Turbacon Duncan, he might become cool again. So, and who knows? Maybe that's how he stays know. young. It's just the all the Turbacon Duncan he has. All bacon all the time. He's got a bacon IV. As soon as he steps off stage, yes. they hook him up to the Baconator. Oh, okay. So uh, this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can contact us. If you have uh, feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Well, actually, not indifferent. Nobody enjoys indifferent feedback. But if you've got feedback for us, let us know over at elementop.com. Some of you people only watch this show on the YouTubes, and you don't know that there's this whole other website. Of course you know, because I talk about it every week, and it's right there in my lower third, but I'm going to pretend that you don't know that there's this whole other website called elementop.com where you can find this show and some other stuff that we used to do in the past. But this show is there in all its hi-fi glory. You can download the excessively large MP3 files that I get emails about, and you can you can read the uh, scant show notes that I get emails about, all right there at elementop.com. You can also use the contact us button to send me an email about the notes and the file sizes. So uh, do that. <laughs> Click on the contact us button. Send me an email. You can also do it directly yourself, edl at elementop.com. That goes to all three of us. Uh, or if you'd like to be on your show, on the show in in your full voice as the door-to-door geek was uh, you can pick up a phone anywhere in the north american land mass that includes uh, usa mexico and canada uh, you can uh, uh, pick up that phone and dial 559-IMOP and be connected to our Google Voice mailbox. If you're too lazy to even do that, right there on the website, there's a contact us button, uh, or excuse me, there's a leave us a voicemail widget. You just type in your phone number and Google Voice will call you. All you got to do is pick up the phone. Um, so do any of those things. Let us know what you think. Also, don't forget the forums out there. We, we talk about the bad movie forum and the bacon forum. The, the Turbeka Duckin has to go in that forum, I'm sure. Um, but uh, there's other stuff out there. There's actually real stuff going on. Actually, listeners uh, uh, interacting with other listeners, asking questions, getting answers. Go check it out. All that goodness at elementop.com. Free this week for a special deal. Um. <laughs> 
Chris, Seth, thanks for being with me as always. Listener, thank you for listening. You're the reason we do this. And hey, if you want to if you wanna kick back a little bit, if you say, you guys bring me so much joy every week, how can I pay you back? Well, do your shopping through elementopi.com slash Amazon this Christmas season. And maybe if you're not planning on doing any online sh- uh, shipping, hit the tip jar, uh, tip jar, throw me 10 bucks. Five bucks, thirty cents, whatever you want to do. Uh, there, there's no tip too small, and there's certainly no tip too big. And uh, we we, appre- we appreciate you doing that. Thanks for listening, and I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday.